the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to this 820 AM The Word broadcast special, Heart of the City. Pastors, ministry leaders, and churches have received a call to serve their communities with the love and compassion of Christ. The call is from God's heart to the heart of the city. This is Heart of the City. I'm Chuck Olmstead, the Director of Local Ministry Development for 820 AM The Word. I've often said as I've started this program with many different interviews that this program, Heart of the City, is about pastors and ministry leaders and really stories about people and the faithfulness of God in their lives. I love to hear the stories because they're all unique. God is so faithful in so many different ways in our lives. There's never a formula. And uh, one of the things also about the interviews that I do with many people from different walks of life is sometimes I've never met them before, and sometimes I don't know their story until I sit down to record. And this is an example of that. Our guest today is uh, Lily Neenhouse, and uh, Lily is actually at a remote location up near Bellingham, Washington, and I'm looking at her today uh, via Zoom, but we're recording today your story Lily, welcome to Heart of the City. Thank you. Uh, well, it's good to meet you. And uh, like I said, uh, I I know I've heard little bits and pieces about you, but uh, don't know your whole story. So we're going to, our listeners and, and I are going to kind of discover together what the Lord's done in your life. So obviously, uh, since I don't know you, tell me a little bit about yourself, where, where you grew up, uh, what your family's like, and uh, just kind of the beginning of your story. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I am 24 years old. I am married. Um, my husband and I have been married for three years now, and we have a beautiful one-year-old daughter. Huh. And she is such such a blessing. She's a miracle. She's our little miracle baby. Um, What's her name? And Adeline. Adeline. Okay. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So I, I mean, my my childhood. I looking back, it was great. You know, my parents were very very amazing, loving, Christ-like people. And they always did their best to guide us down the right path. And, um, you know, they loved my brothers and I so, so well and taught us great things. Um, so looking back, you know, it was it was happy. I, I had a really good childhood, which I think is surprising to some people considering um, what, I've, what I've gone through and how my background doesn't necessarily match up with that. But you know, the Lord does great things, and he has he's brought me from that. Yeah. Well, so did you grow up then in the Bellingham area? Um, yes. So I actually, my family and I moved from Oak Harbor when I was roughly seven. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we moved to Linden and lived in Linden ever since. My husband and I live in Everson right now, but mm-hmm. we're in Linden today. Yeah. So basically, you're, you're a Northwest girl, grew up in... 
in Whidbey Island and uh, not too far from Whidbey Island, uh, living up in the, the northern parts of, of uh, Washington State. So growing up in a Christian family, so going to church pretty much uh, every Sunday or oh, yeah. have a regular fellowship. So you're hearing the the Bible, you're hearing the gospel. Uh, was there a time in your life uh, as a child where you uh, had an experience with the Lord, where you would say, I, I, I received Jesus into my life? Or what was what was your spiritual walk like as a youngster? Yeah, when I was young, um, I specifically remember being in the living room of our house in Oak Harbor. And I remember uh, my mom sitting and talking to my brothers and I about what it means to have Jesus in your heart. And um, I remember my brother prayed to, and asked the Lord to be in his life. And you know, I thought that was pretty cool. So I did it too. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I always loved, I loved going to church. I loved going to Sunday school as a kid. I was, I was very, very, uh, very into it. And mm-hmm. I just loved the community and I loved learning. Yeah. So, uh, so, you know, obviously you, you, uh, you grew up in the church and you hear, you know, you're probably singing with other kids and you're in worship services and all that sort of thing. So what begins to happen in your heart and in your mind in your teenage years? Um, I think it really started when I was, I think I noticed that I was a little bit different when I was younger. Um, I remember being about seven or eight years old and I think maybe the move was a little bit hard on me. It was just a change of atmosphere. And um, I think that's when I really started to notice, you know, why don't, why don't these kids want to play with me? And, you know, why do I feel like I'm weird? And so I, I actually started um, self-harming around that time, although I didn't know what that was or what it necessarily meant. I just knew that it made um, the pain in my head go away. Um, and so as I got to be a teenager, uh, I was homeschooled up until that point, up until I was about 12. And my parents put us into public school. So that was fun being 12. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and um that was hard, I think, because uh, I was in the seventh grade and everybody already knew each other and middle school kids aren't exactly the nicest. No, we're brutal. <laughs> I, I look back at my middle school years and how brutal we boys were to each other. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, and, you know, and that I'm sure that hasn't changed, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And so I I did get bullied quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, had a really hard time making friends that first year in public school. And uh, when I did start to meet people unbeknownst to me, they were involved in some of the things that I got involved with. And, um, you know, they were, they were kind of misfits. So I felt like I fit in with them and they accepted me and I just wanted to feel that acceptance. So, uh, that's really when it, when I started kind of experimenting here and there with drinking alcohol, smoking marijuana, things like that. Yeah. So in your mind, uh, you know, and who knows the mind of a teenager, you know, I, I have, uh, I have three kids and they've all gone through teenagers and they're, they're, uh, adults now, but, uh, I know myself and then I know my teen teenagers. Sometimes, uh, there's, uh, there's definitely a disconnect from what you know. And then just that whole thought process as far as wanting acceptance and approval oh, yeah. and all of those kinds of things. So, 
So what was happening in your heart during that time? Was it just, it's just like, I just want to feel good. I want to feel good and have friends. And so therefore I'm just going to go along with them. Is that kind of the mindset? Yeah, I think so. I was, I was very, very uh, impressionable. You know, I, I, I struggled a lot with, at that point in time, with holding my ground and staying true to my morals, um, just because they were doing what they were doing. And so I thought, hey, you know, I want to be a part of them. I want to have friends too. And I kind of just went along with it. It was, it was a lot of peer pressure. And, um, you know, it just started slowly, maybe on the weekends here and there, I would hang out with people and I would smoke or drink and um, just not not a huge thing. I thought, you know, I'm just, I'm just a kid. I'm just experimenting. It's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. Um, which definitely led me down a very, very dark, dark path. Yeah. How old were you at about that time? Um, like probably 14 or so Mm -hmm. was when I really got into it. And I, um, let's see, I was 14 when the first time I got in trouble with the law, I was caught, um, stealing from a store and so that I think people thought maybe it would kind of help set me straight but it it really didn't um you know I did have to go through juvenile court and um go through a a process and do community service and all that but Mm -hmm. really after that I just went right back to what I was doing and I had gotten into high school at that point and that really um, opened me up to a whole new world because there were people that were a lot older than me now and they knew how to get certain things that I didn't know how to get. And so, um, that really got me into a lot harder drugs at that point. So what's happening with uh, mom and dad at the time? I mean, mom and dad have any suspicions or were you pretty good at what you were doing? Well, I thought I, I thought I was good at it, <laughs> but thought, not not so much. Huh? <laughs> yeah, no, right. and, they, and they I think they definitely knew. Um, right, they knew something wasn't right, and but they I didn't did, know um, the extent, probably. Yeah, no. Yeah. Um, I did come to them at one point uh, the summer. I think it was between. Oh, it must have been my freshman and my sophomore year. Um, I was about fifteen, and I came to them and I said, "Hey, I, I think I need some help." Um, because at that point I had started, I was heavily drinking every day. I was introduced to pills. I was introduced to heroin. Um, and I, I didn't really know what to do at that point. So that was when we kind of started trying to get me help, but it it took quite a few years for me to really get it. And I went through a lot in those couple of years. Mm. So your mom and dad were, were, were there for you when you did reach out to them. It wasn't that they were condemning, but they were really searching to try to help you. Yes. Yes. And, mm. um, you know, they were great with all that. And so they took me to, you know, they provided different resources for me. Um, and I, I, I tried at first, you know, and it got to the point where I kind of, I kind of wasn't super into it, but I did it because I knew my family wanted me to do it. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't necessarily the right motivation because, uh, you know, something that a lot of recovering addicts say is that you really can't change. You can't get help unless you really want to, Mm -hmm. you know, and you have to, you have to want that in your heart. And at that point I I didn't want it. Right. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, I guess the alternative as far as the lifestyle Still had the attraction, you know, the mm-hmm. the partying and all that. Still, still was somewhat fun. I'm I'm assuming that's, 
you know, ha- having family that's uh, been through similar situations uh, of addiction, I, I, I totally understand, you yeah. know, and uh, and uh, mom and dad are, are struggling to try to f- figure out how to help. But, uh, you know, it really does come down to just the, uh, your own understanding of where you're at and, and when you need to get sober. So what happens next? You start experimenting with heroin. Mm-hmm. What's that like for those uh, of the listeners when when you start going down the road of being a heroin? Uh, did you consider yourself a heroin addict, or were you just experimenting with heroin? Um, at first, I I thought I'm I'm just experimenting. I can I can stop anytime I want, and that's a lie that a lot of addicts tend to tell themselves in mm-hmm. in the beginning. Um, you know, I thought I had a hold on it, but really, I didn't, and. Um, for a while, I I started hanging out with an older group of guys that had gone to my school. Um, I was 14, 15 at the time, and they were probably 18, 19, some in their 20s. Um, and I that was how I got introduced to heroin. And um, the first time uh, I ever did heroin, I, I, I always remember that so well because it was this very, very different warm exciting feeling to me and i was feeling the warmth and the love per se that i felt like i wasn't um feeling and getting from friends or anything and you know my parents were they both worked um for a while my mom was working full-time at safeway my dad was working at faith life and uh so i felt like i didn't get to see them a whole lot and i understood that they both had huge stressors in their lives and i didn't want to burden them with that so to say um yeah and so i i started uh basically my my source of the drugs the way i was able to get access to heroin and to other pills was through these guys i was hanging out with and um i when I was 15, I was actually drugged and raped. And um, that's something that really changed me hmm. for a long time. And it, and it still does. Um, I, I use, I like to use that for good now. I like to tell my story and help people because I know that there's somewhere out, someone out there that has gone through something that I have and, you know, maybe my story can help them. Um, but that led to a, so, so much darkness and, um, in order to continue getting a supply of drugs for myself, I was basically passed around, um, mm. so to say, uh, with, between these guys, mm. and um, that's how that's how I kept my supply of drugs coming in. Having spoken with heroin addicts before, uh, one, one of them said to me one time, which really stuck with me, and that was that in in other drug addictions, that you use the drug to um, to alter your mood, he got to the point where heroin helped him to stay normal mm-hmm. is how he said it. And it was really interesting to me that uh, that with other drugs, with meth or cocaine, you're trying to get out of normal, if you will, and go into another altered state. But for him, heroin was such a potent drug in his life that the only way he could be normal was when he was on heroin. Does that make sense to you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I I remember the first time that I kind of thought, okay, maybe this is something that's a little bigger than what I think it is. Uh, I remember waking up and I hadn't used any heroin 
since the previous day. And um, that was my first experience with the beginnings of withdrawal symptoms. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, okay, this is, this is not good. Um, I have to keep using drugs. I have to keep drinking. I have to keep using heroin so that I don't feel these things. And at that point, I, I knew I had become chemically dependent. And um, that was something that was hard for me to come to terms with. I think I ignored it for a really long time mm -hmm. um, until I finally went to treatment. And the first week I was in treatment was very, very, very difficult um, coming off the drugs, cold turkey. And I was actually put in the hospital on, I think, day six that I was in treatment because I was withdrawing so bad. I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. I, it was, it was awful. Um, and I, at that point, I really just wanted to, to die hmm. because the experience was so bad. And I had so much physical and mental pain that I did not think that it was worth it to keep going. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's hor it's horrible and having having seen that happen in loved ones and also having those conversations. You know, what one of the other things that I know about addictions is that especially for those of us of faith that have a background of faith, oftentimes because of guilt and shame and all of those things that that there has to be a deception that takes place, you know, and and uh, because you, you're not wanting to be totally honest and truthful with the people you love. And so there's there's lying that goes on. There's deception. And the spiral that happens oftentimes is then self-deception, is that you, you get into that mode of self-deceiving where you're you're lying to yourself and, and about what's going on. But it sounds like you had some at least a background where you understood that of what you were going through and that you, you needed help and that you were seeing that happening in your own life. Yeah. So, so what happens next after you go through rehab or you go through the withdrawal and, and uh, what's going on in your life spiritually? Uh, did, did you feel like because of the experiences of, of being raped and, and all of that, was there like, uh, you know, I'm damaged goods, there's no hope, or, or, or what were you sensing? Um, yeah, for a while. I, I really did consider myself uh, damaged. That You know, I didn't think anybody would want me or love me. And I had been to a handful of churches that um, I was told basically that because of the things I had done and because of the things I was doing that um, – God wouldn't accept me anymore, that I would go to hell for it. And um, that was told to me so often that eventually I started to believe it. Mm. So at that point, I I tried really hard to remove myself from Christianity, and I didn't want anything to do with it. Um, and so I, I got out of rehab that first time, and it was very, very strict at home for a while, which um, I can understand where my parents were coming from in their intentions. They didn't, they did not allow me to go back to school and I couldn't have my phone. I couldn't hang out with anybody. And, um, you know, I, I appreciate their intentions, but I think having that such, such a severe restriction, um, not necessarily that that, that is what pushed me to go back out again, but I eventually did because I was essentially going a little bit stir crazy. And mm -hmm. I, and again, I, that first time I went, to rehab, I really didn't do it for myself. I did it for my family. Mm -hmm. And so 
just a few short months later, I, I ended up back in the same treatment center. Um, and that time I, I was really sick of it. And I thought, okay, I, I really need to do something this time because what I'm doing is not working. And shortly before I went in that second time, I, I remember, um, when my parents caught me, um, with all the drugs that I had and my dad told me, he said, Hey, you need to, you can keep the drugs and get out or you can stay here, your choice. And so I took my drugs and I left. And I remember walking down the street and my younger brother at the time, he was only 11 or 12 and we were really close. Um, he chased me down the street on his bike and followed me. And um, he begged me to come back. He said, please, please come back because I know you're gonna die out there. And it breaks my heart now when I think about it. It brings me to tears because he had such an innocent outlook and he had such a, a love for me and and he begged me not to go out and, and I still did. And that's how strong the grips of the addiction were. Um, I didn't care about my family. I didn't care about myself. I didn't think that life was really worth anything at all. Hmm. And that was... That was very, very difficult. Um, so that second time in treatment, I really tried very, very hard to change myself because I had caused so much damage. Um, my my mom always jokes that I'm the one that made her hair turn gray. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, the second time I, I got out of treatment, I, um, I made the decision to go back to school and it made my parents very, very nervous, but I felt like that's what I needed to do. Um, and it was really hard. I, there were a lot of rumors. I got bullied quite a bit again, you know, because I'd been out of school for such a long period of time. And I actually ended up, uh, attempting suicide when I think it was October of 2012, I believe. Um, and I overdosed at school and, um, ambulance came, take me, took me to the hospital and, um, that was really the first time that I ever felt cared for in the, the, the past couple of years prior to that. Um, you know, I remember waking up and I was in the hospital and my dad was sitting right next to me and he told me that he loved me so much. And I've, n I had never seen my dad cry mm. ever in my life <laughs> until that point. And mm. that was something that hit me really hard. And, and he told me that, you know, he asked me if it was, if it had something to do with, um, yeah, I was in the process of reporting the, the rape that had happened and working with the police. And so it was very, very taxing mentally. And, you know, my dad said he was always going to protect me. Hmm. And that really was like, okay, wow. Um, people do still care. Yeah. Um, and that kind of started my journey of healing. Once I got out of the hospital, um, I was actually invited to church by one of my old friends, and she was pretty much one of my only friends that stuck with me that whole time. I lost everybody else, and I was very, very reluctant to go at first. I said, "You know, I don't, I don't do that thing anymore. I don't, I don't do Jesus. I don't do church. I don't do God. You know, that's not, that's just not me." Mm -hmm. um, but little did I know that that was really going to start my journey back into into life yeah life without drugs 
Well, we're speaking with Lily Neenhouse, and Lily, uh, I, I just want to invite you. Uh, your story's not done yet as far as radio is concerned, and, and uh, we need to do a part two, which if uh, we'll stick around and record that. But I do want us to wrap up this this part one of your story yeah. just to encourage people, if, if, uh, if you're hearing Lily's story and you relate to it, whether it's you yourself have an addiction or you have a loved one that has an addiction, there is hope, and and it, and it it is a journey walking through, and even as Lily is sharing, and and she'll be sharing next week on Heart of the City, uh, the rest of her story that uh, it is a process that uh, that uh, folks with addictions go through, and there are so many different uh, facets of the process. It has to do with family relationships. It has to do with of the own, uh, you know, the the life of the person themselves and the decision making that's going through, and uh, but the Lord is good and He is never leaving us or forsaking us, and He is all, always faithful and always good and will protect us. And so, Lily, thank you for joining me on part one today. We'll be uh, we'll be back next week for part two. If you want to hear a podcast of Lily's story, you can go to thewordseattle.com. Click on Heart of the City, and you can hear part one and part two, and uh, we'll be joining you next week. Lily, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thank you so much. You've been listening to this 820 AM, The Word, special Heart of the City. For more information on how your pastor or your ministry can be featured on 820 AM, The Word, call Chuck Olmstead, 206-269-6216, or go to thewordseattle.com. 